Hey, it's Tom Sullivan with Forging Ahead, and my guest today is Eric Fogg. Eric, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself? Sure. So, Tom, obviously, thanks so much for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I, I think it's been for months now, and I'm I'm the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Prod Perfect, and uh, we're a Boston and San Francisco startup. What we do is we automatically build and maintain end-to-end testing suites for web application engineering teams. Got it. I think th- there's a huge risk in this interview of me getting over my skis really quickly. So I'm going to uh, try to keep it as high level as I can. I feel like it would be um, really tone deaf for me not to pause and ask for a little bit of you know your plans or thoughts over the next few weeks. We're recording this on Monday, March 16th, kind of yeah. right on the heels of city of Boston and, and a lot of other places being sort of shut down. So just wanted to give you a minute to riff on that if you want to. Absolutely. And we actually are, as a company, we are right now very grateful for and very fortunate uh, for the kind of foresight that our CEO, Dan Whiting, had. He set us up as a remote first company from day one. Now, of course, the reason for this is not that he is a doomsday prepper, but uh, instead that you know Dan wanted to make sure that we had the ability to seek the best talent wherever they happen to be, right? And not restrict ourselves to a single city or two in the United States. Uh, his logic to me was, hey, look, Greater Boston has about 3 million people. So that is 1% of the United States population or less than 1% of the United States population. So would we want to restrict ourselves to that or not to get the best people? And so for us, we were we were we have so many remote people that we were set up well for total work from home. We have shut down our offices, uh, so we're you know I'm I'm at home today. Uh, it happens to be great that I have my podcast mic here, and um, you know I I think the thing I'm happy to see as I you know the few forays I've had outside of the house recently because um, we're not in total quarantine yet here in the Bay. Um, are that it, it really seems like people are kind of keeping calm. They're doing the right stuff. Um, everyone's taking this uh, as as seriously as they need to um, and being like, very gentle and patient throughout the whole thing. Um, for us here at Prod Perfect, it's been, it's been very much business as usual. Uh, and, and I could talk how that's impacting engineering, how it's impacting sales, um, sort of wh- whatever we want, but it's, we were in a, we were in a good place to succeed through this. Yeah. I think just, uh, to chase a little bit of curiosity, why do you think that other companies are not setting up as remote first? Like it would be so hard to argue with the logic of opening yourselves up to a much broader, talent pool when a lot of the tools exist to be able to do it? Like, why do you think that other people don't? Well, as much as I don't want to throw uh, some, you know, any class of people under the bus here, I'm probably just going to. Uh, we actually, because we went in hard on remote first, we actually got a lot of pushback from venture capital when we went and raised money in both of our rounds. So we've raised a seed round and a series A. And obviously, the investors that that did invest in us were much more open to it, which is so, you know, props to them. That's Fika, ENIAC, and Anthos. Um, but we also, you know, when we were shopping, we got some people saying, well, I don't really believe in remote companies. They tend not to work. 
And I think it's what's what's kind of unfortunate about it is that there are some VCs, certainly not all, that while their job is to be very forward-looking and, and predict what the future is going to be like and divert capital towards that, um, a lot of them are, you know, they they their mode of operation is very much a pattern matching one. And uh, they uh, they have they look back to the last five or ten years to understand those patterns. And so sometimes, you know, especially depending on their focus, they miss some of the changes that have enabled uh, remote first. They miss, I mean, they frankly miss some of the the changes that have enabled companies to do a lot of stuff recently. So I think a big, I, I think the big reason I'm not seeing more Silicon Valley type companies move over to remote first is that they get so much pressure from venture capital not to. Um, and and as much as it opens up talent, it seems probably until about a week ago, right? Uh, twenty twenty will be the year this all changes. But certainly, when we were raising in 2018, 2019, um, it seemed to close the door to a lot of capital and and money talks. Yeah, definitely. I guess I didn't anticipate going really this hard on remote. But uh, one more question there would be just: Is there um, like one or two? principles that you've either stolen or borrowed or yeah. developed in-house that you think are kind of cornerstones to doing it well? I'm really glad you asked, actually, because we are we are fine at it, but we are a fairly nascent company. We're 39 people, mm-hmm. and uh, we stole pretty much everything from GitLab. Um, there are other companies that do this well, Stack Overflow, um, but GitLab is actually quite public with all of their information about how they do it, what their handbooks look like, what their technology stack looks like. So anyone who is trying to do that scramble pivot, I suggest spend a late, you know, uh, others, other founders out there, spend a late night reading through GitLab's uh, remote remote guidance. And But if you're going to get started right away, I mean, obviously you have Slack and the or if you don't, you know, we we got bigger problems. But (laughs) um, for those of you that have Slack, what one of the things we lean into really, really hard is having a bazillion channels Um, and and almost an overwhelming number, you know, even even employees coming from other tech companies are, are befuddled by it. And we have a rolling guide to using Slack um, at ProdPerfect, it's a, it's its own beautiful, terrible, unique thing. Um, and that guide, the 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 little tip that I have is that for different categories of channels, we put a prefix in front of the channel name. So CS is a customer channel, um, SA is sales, so it's like SA dash something. Uh, for our fund channels, it's yay, so Y-A-Y dash something. And that allows people to search pretty easily. They say, I want a custom, you know, I'm looking for customer-related channels here. You type CS, and then there's a stack of channels that you can join. This allows us to keep all of our remote communication really, really well organized. It means everyone knows where every thread is. Stuff isn't getting just tossed into general um, in in total chaos. And, um, and that is the... That that feels it feels very tactical, but I've seen I've seen the impact that it's had for this business, and um, I, I think it's the you know obviously there's other tools like Zoom and such that that we're using, um, but if you're a tech company, you just don't need to be in the same place. Um, you know, have have your have your video camera ready. You know, work from home. Make sure you're wearing pants. Reorient your Slack to. 
to be ready to rock and and you will manage right humans are very adaptable yeah um just like the i know you said that you've bought you do a podcast as well and i didn't get a chance to listen to much of it but have you done any have you done any work on your voice or have you always had just pipes for radio (laughs) well i've always been told i have a face for radio but the (laughs) um for my oh gosh well that thanks for the compliment i'm blushing it's really really good one of the nice things about podcasting is that you can't you can't see me blush but uh i'll just keep this one short so i didn't train my voice for uh gosh now i'm self-conscious about it but i didn't train my voice for um for podcasting specifically but I did take some public speaking courses uh, for uh, for some previous work that I was doing because I actually used to be horrified of public speaking. I would I would sw- you know clammy hands, stuttering, red face, the whole thing. So I uh, I just dove right into it, and so I practiced uh, in front of a mirror a lot. I'd record myself, I'd listen to it, and so to some extent, yes, I did. I do speak a little bit differently into the mic than I do than I do in person. Uh, it, it as much as, as much as this is odd to say, my voice is higher in person than it is speaking into the microphone. But the thing that I learned most is clear diction, right? Clear pronunciation, and that allows me to. The important part was that allowed me to speak quickly without anyone losing what I was saying. So, uh, yes, it is a practice makes perfect kind of thing for sure. Got it. Um, just to sort of make a hard transition back to prod perfect. Can you take us to the kind of origin story or maybe some of the early days of, of kicking around the idea as it was being baked out? Yeah, this is, there's, there's, this is dangerous. It could get, it could get really long. We just had our retreat in January, blessedly kind of before everything got shut down. And, Dan and I, told, you know, we always tell the story to the new folks that show up. Our, fir- our, our first retreat in 2018 was nine people. Uh, and then our retreat in 2020 was 36. So it was, a, it was a, obviously a big year for us. But what happened before that was Dan and I met at a previous startup uh, that I did where I was the first hire and not, so not the founder. But and it was helmet vending machines for bike share, which which is pretty cool until you think about it for too long. And then you realize it's not going to work. Uh, but we didn't know back then. We were we were young. And uh, but I hired Dan as my first software engineer. Dan and I became best friends. Uh, the the business like promptly collapsed six months later. Dan and I became best friends, and we actually were on vacation together in Poland, having left our girlfriends behind, and we were like five vodkas in. At a, at a bar somewhere. And Dan said, Hey, look, I've, I want your feedback on a startup idea. And I was thinking maybe you could be an advisor. And I, f- I figured out eventually that Dan was sneaky, sneaky, trying to get me to quit my job and join him, uh, which I, which I did by, so this was November, 20, 2017, sorry, late October, 2017. And, uh, I eventually in by December, I said, fine, I'm in. And the, the idea he had, you know, of course, the idea we had wasn't perfectly what we're doing now, but what Dan recognized as a director of engineering at a software company called WeSpire uh, in between, you know, in between the old startup and this one, what he recognized was that 
QA, like quality assurance for software engineering uh, is, is a very, it's a very artistic process. Um, it is, it is, it does not have the discipline of, uh, of the rest of software development. It's something where people have, you know, dogmas and religions about how it's supposed to be done. Uh, obviously it's, and, and there's material problems with this is expensive, et cetera. I, I won't get into the pitch, but what he knew he wanted to do is bring data to it, uh, because it was, it is end to end testing and something that's, that's decided on by committee, what tests we should write for it. Um, he wanted to bring data to it. Product analytics had advanced to a certain point. We figured we could do something with it early on. Uh, I'm not a software engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. And uh, so early on, I was doing a lot of studying to to learn this in early 2018. But that study um, was also the product market fit exploration, right? Because I was interviewing a lot of a lot of engineers that I knew. Uh, and we, we finally, it was, it was bloody like March or something that I remember saying, you know, Hey, would you want this? Would you want this? And I remember, um, a friend of mine who I'm actually gonna, uh, I'll, I'll spare his name to protect the innocent, <laughs> but he, he said, hold on, hold on, hold on. That thing you just said, tell me more about that. And that was the moment we knew we had something. And, um, and what that was, was automatically building these end to end tests by analyzing production behavior. So uh, to speed things up a little bit, we brought on our first uh, data scientist, Wilson. Um, so uh, Wilson was, was number three of the three amigos there. And we, we got to work. We hacked together our first version of the product. We sold it by May. Um, and we actually were, were running out of money. So one of the things that we didn't do that, that you're supposed to do is have a ton of savings ready to go so you can hang out for a year. We did not have a year of savings. Uh, Dan, I remember he had said in February, you know, hey, if in four months we're not making any money or don't have any funding, you know, that's when we're cut it. And so, because uh, we'll be out of money. And so six months later, we were in a lot of trouble <laughs> when we, um, we'd applied to Y Combinator. We'd actually flown out. We didn't get in. Um, we had applied to a number of other accelerators. We tried some angel funding. We couldn't find anyone where the idea stuck. Um, even though we had a customer paying us at some point. And the thing that changed was we uh, uh, we actually got reached out to by an Entrepreneur Roundtable Accelerator in New York by uh, Justin Smithline, who is who's very technically savvy, who understands the software market. He saw the pain more than anyone else we had talked to. Um, and he and John and Marat decided it was a it was a good bet. We got into the accelerator. We finally had some money. We were able to raise quite quickly after that, and uh, that's that was the that was how it got really got started for us. Was when we were able to help, and I think this is important for any early founder: is you have to help an investor understand the magnitude of the pain that you're trying to solve. Um, and demonstrate people's willingness to pay a lot of money to solve it. And if those things are very well articulated, you will you will earn the right to get money to get started. I love that. What about that first sale or the early sales? Like, are there any um, stories or feelings that you can remember from trying to convince the first person to hand you a check? Big time. Oh yeah. Uh, I actually, I do a back at ERA, the accelerator, I, every class, they have two classes a year and I come down to teach, uh, a 
uh, module called the founder sale uh, because I am not a salesperson. I did not come out of sales. So I didn't know what I was doing, which ended up being an advantage for me because there were all these rules that I was breaking that I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to do them. Right. And so people, and, and that's, that's been part of my secret is people would ask me like, why, why do you guys do this? Like, this is totally off the books. It's like, well, I never read the books, so I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know I wasn't allowed. And um, it was, so, you know, next to, next to public speaking in my early twenties, the first time I remember, man, the first time I ever asked someone for money was the, was the scariest moment I'd had in years, in years, because You've, you've built this thing and you know it's janky, right? You know, it's a, it's a few months old. It's janky. And you are asking for the most profound level of validation that you will ever get from anyone, right? More than someone loving you, more than someone, you know, more, more than graduating from a good university or something, you are asking someone to say, I'm going to put my hard earned and, and always tight resources. I'm going to give those to you in exchange for this because you've built something so good and so cool. Right. And, and it's frightening to ask someone for that. You're asking for a lot of trust. So what we, uh, we actually, we did this once in late April and failed. We got a big no right at the end. Uh, and then, uh, we, what we did for Elemental Machines, which was our first customer that ended up saying yes, was we performed this analysis of their traffic and said, okay, this is what, these are the test cases that we're getting out of this. And of course, what the test cases looked like was super janky, but, but the, their VP engineering, John Rodley was, uh, he's, his quote is actually in our demo deck. I remember him saying, I never want to think about regression testing again. So we knew we were, we knew we were onto something. My process for selling was the one book I did read was Spin Selling, uh, which is all about consultate, like helping people understand their problem and their needs better mm -hmm. and um, and making that more acute. And I remember when we when we did this, I said, I want to do a, you know, when we built this, I said, you know, I, of course, tied it back to the pain that he's feeling and such. And I said, I'm going to do a proof of concept for this for two months. Uh, sorry, two weeks. And I remember Dan, our CEO, saying, maybe we should just do it for free to see what happens. I said, no, I want some money. So I just looked him in the eye and said, would you pay $50 for this? And he was like, what? Are you serious? I was like, uh, yes, I think so. I think I am. What's wrong? And he said, this is worth a lot more than $50. Um, and and uh, the the implied comma dum-dum was, was in that was in that statement. And we ended up, um, I ended up insisting, look, I offered it to you, we're going to do it. But they ended up being our first buyer. Um, and then I had to ask them for a real amount of money, which had four digits rather than two associated with it, which is the second scariest thing I ever did. <laughs> and, uh, but what I was, the reason I was able to get through that abject terror was that I was able to, you know, for, for a product like this, you know, we're, we're building, we're building test automation that normally you have to hire engineers to build and maintain. And they were of getting of a size that they were otherwise thinking about bringing on a quality assurance automation engineer. So I knew how much they were planning to spend, right? I, I know what that costs in Boston. So I had a really good benchmark to be able to say, what if I charge you a third of that, right? What if you got the same or a better result for a third of the money? And 
John kind of rolled his eyes because he knew he was getting a steal, but he was also the first customer we had. So, um, so I think the way that the the way my advice for other folks that are that are going through this journey is one understand you know understand the problem that you are solving really really well right this helps you in both fundraising and sales make sure your customer understands the problem that they have and they can articulate it to you right go read spin um and, or spin selling by neil rackham and then Third, price your product not based on your costs. So this is like a classic McKinsey thing. Don't price based on costs. Price based on value. And for you, know, for you, you, you have to understand that you're either a brand new thing that someone can do or you're an alternative way of doing something that people already do or want to do. If you're an alternative way, you can price it similarly to how people have valued it in the market before. If it's brand new, it's a lot harder. And, um, you know, we had the, we had the benefit of being an alternative to hiring more engineers or deploying your engineers resources towards doing this rather than building product. So we were able to, we use that as a constant benchmark against which we price so that people understand that, you know, we're a, we're a budget, you know, we're very budget friendly, uh, alternative. And I actually believe just to circle back to the the coronavirus thing, you know, I'm watching the stock market and today it just dropped another 7% or something. And I actually believe, uh, and I'm getting signals from last week and, and even today, I believe we're actually very recession uh, uh, resilient, I think is the word for it, because we have articulated so well our ability to help people do more with less, which a lot of people are going to have to do over the next year, I think. I love it. Um, kind of two two sales things. The first is, do you think that there is a little lesson or a nugget in there about you? You said it earlier, not knowing the rules or not have done, you know, not have read six sales books before you went out on the street and tried to get somebody to buy. I do believe there's a nugget in that, and I think that you know I'm a bit of an idiot savant when it comes to sales, as it turns out, and 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 one of the reasons the idiot part is is that when I finally started hiring salespeople, I was actually bad at training them because they of course had, you know, there, there was this, there's this like mental model that they're used to. And I couldn't put what I had into that mental model. Um, so that's kind of the challenge of having your first salesperson, which I was be, be totally green. However, I do think that the first salesperson for a startup needs to not be a salesperson, right? So, you know, I've now mashed those two words together. If I was writing it, you'd see it. It needs to not be a salesperson. Don't go to, you know, if you're selling software, don't, you know, a SaaS product, right? Don't go to Salesforce and just poach a salesperson and say, this person will be great at selling this. They won't. And the reason they won't is that they're great at selling something where the value is established, the case studies are there. There's a ton of, there's a ton of like customer logos, there's product marketing, there's all this stuff. Your first product, there's none of that, right? And for the first two years of your company, there's somewhere between none and barely any of that. You also have not established product market fit yet. I don't care if you think you do, until you've sold a few million dollars of it, you've not established product market fit yet. And so what that means is the skill set that you need is fundamentally different. I think we got lucky in that we stumbled into, or maybe Dan, like Dan is a, Dan has a genius intuition, my CEO. 
Um, and so I think his intuition was, was what worked here. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But I do believe for you founders out there, one, like I, the reason I call this uh, workshop the founder sale is that the founders have to sell the first products. And if you're sitting there being like, oh, I am, I am but a lowly engineer, I can't sell anything or I don't want to, you know, when you say I can't, it's because you don't want to, you're afraid to, it seems hard, you're looking for reasons to resist it, but you absolutely must learn how to sell it. Because if you don't learn how to sell it, you cannot establish product market fit. And it will be in your journey of establishing product market fit that you will find people as you interview them that go, you know what, I'm really interested in this. Like you have tapped on a problem that I have. You really think you can solve it in a better way than everyone else? Let's talk more, right? And, and through this consultative exercise, you will establish a motion that starts to work. You'll feel it. You'll know because you're going to get a lot of rejection. And when you don't, you're going to go, wait, that feels different. And when that's the case, then you dig in and, and be, you know, be open, be transparent. Don't look to, don't, don't try to, what's the thing? It's, it's a little like the corporate BS email that you get, right? Like, you know, that email from, you know, from the Karens or the Chads of the world where, where, you know, it goes like, you know, dear Mr. Fogg. I've CC'd your boss on this, blah, 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 sincerely blank, right? That kind of stuff where people fall into these rote measures because they're afraid of being authentic and they're afraid of being themselves and being vulnerable and being exposed. The founder needs to get over all of that and just go all in, right? And say, look, this is what we got. I don't, I've literally never, you know, we've never sold this before. I'm going to make up a price and we're going to see if it's the right one. Be transparent with these people, make them part of you know, make them part of the early buying experience. There are people who actually really enjoy that, right? Who want to be on the cutting edge, who want to be right at the front, who want to work with early stage startups and help guide that progress, right? Who want to experiment, who want to take risks. Now I'm talking a lot of B2B sales, which is what I know. Um, but so yeah, that so so that's a long way of saying my nugget is that the first salesperson should be a founder. You should understand some basics about sales, um, but you should be making your early sales more about a journey to establish product market fit, understand your customer, understand the industry, understand your ideal buyer profile, understand these personas. And in that process, when you have succeeded to some extent in that process, you will incidentally sell some stuff and then establish a repeatable way to do it. And I love that. I love like stumbling into actionable stuff where I could picture somebody pulling over and, and writing that down. So I, I'm psyched that we got there and I feel like I could ask you a hundred more sales things, but there's some meat in some of these other things that I want to get to. So I'm going to attempt a little bit of a harder transition, but sure. Um, I want to see if I can... In your LinkedIn profile earlier, and I want to see if I can pull it up and read it to you because I really liked it. If you um, can't find it. You emailed it to me. I can read it. I got it right here. So a section that I won't read the whole thing, but a couple of years ago, I co-founded Prod Perfect, where I helped my team grow personally and improve their ability to help people solve QA problems. So I want to stop there because the other stuff doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but sure. The way that you wrote that, coming from somebody who has written two books and writes a lot about really, you know, 
heavy topics. Tell like riff on that a little bit for me. You put help my team grow personally as the first thing that you do at Prod Perfect. Yeah. The this happens to be my passion is and it's why I it's why I got excited about founding a software testing company, even though I didn't come from the software industry, right? Dan is Dan is hyper passionate about the industry and solving a major problem in the industry. I've learned to fall in love with it. But when I started, my dream was I didn't go, ah, yes, finally software shall be free from the agony of having to like mine selectors out of the Selenium mines, right? <laughs> yeah. That was not my vision. My vision for me when I closed my eyes was was to build a little utopia. And uh, it's I know it's a little cultish and weird. And uh, but I think like I, I do think founders have to be a little ridiculous to normal people in order to succeed, right? If you don't think that if you don't think reality is different than than most people think about it, then you probably aren't ambitious enough, right? Um, you have to be audacious. And so my audacity is in what kind of team are we going to have and how are they going to perform? And the reason I am actually, what is the reason I'm so passionate about this? I think some of it is a little bit of paying it forward. Um, my first job out of school was Stroud, uh, Stroud consulting where they leaned super heavily into personal development. And it's been, it's actually where I did my like public speaking training, uh, at, at the encouragement of my boss there. Uh, among a number of other things that I've I've very profoundly grown in. So some of it is paying forward and, and seeing what that does for people. But some of it is, I believe, I believe very much that, I believe very much that people have v- like tragically untapped levels of potential that through, in particular, through the rules that ha- they have been taught in life, the uh, most of which are unspoken and implicit, they hold themselves back, right? So, so everyone who talks to me hears hears me talk about the basis of my success being I didn't know the rules, so I didn't know what I wasn't allowed to do, and then I went and did it, and it worked. And I do believe that there was a past version of me that wanted to adhere to the rules without understanding it, right? There are these, these, these are subconscious thoughts that we have that, oh, if I'm going to write an email that includes something uh, that could be, un- you know, a conversation that could be uncomfortable, I have to write it in this super BS, you know, fake formal way uh, that everyone hates, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? I'm not allowed to be authentic. I'm not allowed to be real. Um, or uh, in my, you know, or I'm not allowed to give my boss really frank, blunt feedback because my boss might not like it because my boss is supposed, because my boss believes that they're supposed to know everything. And so if they get that feedback, it's threatening to their identity. These are the kinds of rules that people walk around with in their heads. And I hate them because we have in, for example, this situation where the boss and the, the employee have agreed to these rules 
it means that the boss is not getting that feedback, which robs the boss of an opportunity to grow as a person. And it robs the employee of the ability to improve their relationship with their boss and, and improve their work life. And then also it hurts the company, right? And it hurts everyone, right? Because that company's not moving forward uh, in the way that it could, because all these people are are not getting the bloody feedback they need. So that's just an, that's, that is an example of these rules. And so I have always believed after I, you know, after I started breaking the rules, I believed that it was possible to upend the whole system as it were, and rebuild a place where people can just show up and be their authentic real selves and work bloody hard. Right. And, and everyone at Prod Perfect probably works too darn hard, but, but be a place where, you know, everyone has kind of imagined, for example, like being in mission control, maybe not everyone's imagined this. I've often imagined like being in mission control during the, you know, 250 or so hours of the Apollo 11 mission. Right. And what that felt like and, and what, and the, the, the feelings and the mindset and the, the excitement and the mission orientation that those people had during that in order to accomplish, in order to accomplish something bigger than all of themselves. And most places to work are quite mundane and lame and people feel stifled and they feel frustrated. And, uh, there are, there are mostly crappy places to work. And, and most companies go, we're going to make this a great place to work. We're going to have a ping pong table and free snacks and beer. Boom. Right. And, and that's not what anyone's looking for at all. That is not what anyone wants. People want to go to this place where they're spending most of their waking time by far. And they want to feel like they are doing something important with people who care about them, with people who are smart that they can have a real relationship with and communicate with. And they want to succeed together and grow together. And they want to achieve together and, and, scratch this very deep itch of self-actualization. That is what humans want. And it's what humans are super capable of when the conditions are right. And when the conditions are right, when the organization is right, we can indeed send people to the moon with computers that are less powerful than the old TI-83 calculators that I use in high school, right? That is possible when people are set up right. So this is why I'm so passionate about this because not only, you know, obviously it's just, it's the place I would want to work, but it's also, I believe, I believe it is one of the big secrets about organizations that thrive versus those that fail is that they have done the right stuff through, through various approaches. I mean, my own, my own little weird, like culty dogma here is, is probably not the only way, but by unleashing the potential of people and and um, getting them to step up and step forward and thrive, they succeed where others fail. The good contrast to the to the Apollo program was the Challenger disaster, where a lot of engineers, you know, which which for those who don't know, 1987 Challenger shuttle exploded on on takeoff, right, and everyone everyone all seven crew died. And it was because of this O-ring that failed because it was too cold, because the O-ring was brittle. And multiple people had known about it for years in this organization, right? And the organization was not set up for those people to be able to step forward and do something about it. Um, the people who did step forward got shut down. The middle management totally lacked enthusiasm for the mission. They just wanted to keep their heads down. I mean, it's, it's a perfect example of the total opposite 
kind of parade of horrors organization that we are often used to, um, especially in these like legacy enterprises. Um, I am so afraid of me or other people that work with me wasting our lives by shuffling along uh, in quiet misery that I wanted to see if I could build a better, you know, a better world in my organization. Now I will jump off of my, my <laughs> do you think we could um, try to get, I love so much where we ended up on kind of the last thread, but something practical or something actionable yes. from that. So you've got creating this place where, you know, at its simplest, people want to go and spend a lot of their time, but coming up with a culture that supports a lot of the things that you said, give us some of the, like the practical things that you do every day or your team does every day to foster that environment. Absolutely. It all comes down to, for us, it all comes down to very, very clear, explicit values and then consistent role modeling of them from the top. Um, and it's one of the nice things about setting this up in a startup from day one is that everyone that gets added on gets added to a critical mass of people who all believe in this. Um, Dan and I have to be ultra consistent about them. Uh, and one of those values is is about what we do when we fail to be consistent in them because we will. Um, I am happy to, by the way, if we want to link link our values docs here um, uh, for on on your show notes, I'm happy for them to be public. But sure, the five values we have, the five values we have are transparency, humility, enthusiasm, impact orientation, and ownership. We've defined what those mean, right? And you can imagine how a couple of these, like ownership and transparency, are really good for a remote organization. Um, we've defined very clearly what these mean. It's important that everyone reads them. I know a lot of company values are BS, um, and and people roll their eyes at them. But for us, the, the way that we role model this stuff gets other people to do that organically, right? And the thing about culture, like what culture is, is the stuff that people do organically. It's not policy and it's not procedure. Now you have to, of course, recognize and reward. Let's see, it's like the four R's. Recruit, recognize, reward, and uh, retire or something. Remove. Um, on these values. And um, so here, here are a few examples about them. So um, as regards transparency, Dan and I um, track our time uh, using like a, using daily, I think on the, on a Mac and we publish how we use our time. Um, we, uh, we publish what our runway looks like and what our bank looks like and what our burn looks like to our company. Um, we, um, you know, we have, Every, you know, and, and a, a lot of what we do hits multiple values, but everyone has a KPI and everyone tracks to that KPI, right? Everyone has something measurable that is exposed to the company that has a target and how they're doing about it. Where we use something like humility is the, and, you know, humility, ownership, transparency kind of collide in this, the, these public KPIs, uh, these publicly tracked KPIs the purpose of tracking them isn't to whip people. It is that if you're, if you're not getting, if you know, if you're not hitting target, you need to ask for help. And the way that we role model this stuff is we very publicly reward when people ask for help, we recognize and reward when people ask for help. Right. So we encourage people to be humble. 
The purpose of you owning this KPI is to own its success, not to do it yourself, not to show me that you can do it yourself, but to make sure that by hook or crook, whatever you need to do, that it is successful. And you are, as the owner of it, right, you are, you are a resource as well, but other people are resources for that KPI. Um, the, the other thing that I think is, sup- is the, 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 the layer that enables all of this, that gives us the credibility to be able to ask others to be on board with us in this is that we as founders have to be the first people to publicly recognize when we have failed to live up to these values. There have been times that I have totally failed to be humble or transparent, uh, probably not enthusiastic. Um, I have failed to, have I failed to, well, whatever. Um, but the thing that we do is on Slack or in our kind of monthly, um, typically on Slack, but sometimes in our, our monthly all hands meeting that we have, is Dan and I will say, hey, look, here's, a, here's an example of where, you know, I failed to live up to the values in this way. I'm really grateful for person XYZ who gave me that feedback. Here's the commitment I'm making to better live that. And when you do that, when you do that, people go, holy smokes, right? Because they just don't expect it. And, and of course, there's nothing to be afraid of. Nobody's, nobody's going to look at you when you say, look, here's how I fell short of meeting these values that we care about. Um, people are going to admire you for it. But because of all the rules that people have in their heads, they go, well, you can't, if you're a founder, you can't admit weakness. You can't admit wrongdoing. You can't admit making mistake. People have to believe you're a God. And no, people want to see you as human. Um, and so for us, it is that commitment that we have to our own transparency about how we're performing and being humble about it that in that inspires everyone else to do the same, right? And to and and to want to live by those values. And that's why we actually don't need a whole lot of policy around it other than those four R's, right? Um, one of the ways that we do the recognition. So if we think of the four R's part, um, I guess that's the most policy part. So I, I will touch on this briefly. Recruiting, um, we have standard rubrics for uh, interviews for how well people meet these values. Recognition, we have a winning values channel um, where everyone just piles in when they see other people um, demonstrating those values. We're thinking about other ways of recognizing it. Um, typically non-monetary um, are, is the way we're thinking about it. Um, reward, right? So when we promote people, part of the letter of promotion includes the ways that they have demonstrated these values in an outsized way and the meaning, you know, and and why that's so important. And then we share that with the company um, when they do get promoted. And then removal. Um, Only one person has left the company so far um, out of the, so we've hired 40 and, and we have 39. And that person I removed because that person uh, was was failing on a number of uh, failing to live a number of our values, including um, impact orientation and transparency. And I made that very clear to them in a in a performance review, right? So we include we include values in our performance reviews. Um, I made it very clear to them, and and it didn't change. And even though this person was really smart, um, and and 
very good at, at the role that they were in in a lot of ways because they did not fit our values, right? That had I allowed that person to stick around, they would have been toxic. They would have threatened the entire apparatus. They had to be removed. They were removed. And I told the company that, you know, I, I didn't get too much into the details, but I did tell the company this person was removed because they were not interested in leaving our values, and that all of those behaviors make sure that we get people who are into them, that we reinforce um, and and remind people of them all the time, and and we let people know that that if you're not interested in living them, or the people who aren't interested in living them won't stick around. So we're not going to have people that are sort of cheating the system by you know not being transparent or by slacking or you know by not being willing to accept feedback um, with humility, etc. So. Uh, that was a that that was probably way too long, but uh, I hope that got to a little more sticky stuff. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot there. I'm like, I'm curious as to how you learned how to do that, and then to like piggyback on that would be, how would you coach like a first time brand new founder? Like, I don't think that they could start from day one at the level that you're at right now. But maybe if you give them one or two things that are critical to get right early. Um, how would you think about that? Sure. So I learned about a lot of personal development and feedback stuff from Stroud. I would say that the, um, the two books that were most valuable in me building my part of the apparatus here were Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott and then um, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by, I believe, Jim Dethmer and Diana Klemp. Um, but if you look up the 15 commitments, you'll, you'll find it. Um, these, these are both about shifting mindsets for a leader about how, about breaking some of these rules. Right. And, and that is, that is one of the early steps you have to take is that you just have to be different. If you're going to build an organization that lives that lives a special set of values, you have to live them. And thereby you have to, um, one of the terms I use a lot for people coming on board that are having a little trouble with feedback or having trouble with the, the high level of transparency here is that they have corporate PTSD, right? And this is a very real thing. And anyone that's listening, that's like worked in big corp, they, they you know exactly what I mean. I don't have to explain what it is. Mm -hmm. And so people have to get over that PTSD. You as a founder probably do as well. And so it has to start with you. You have to be different. You have to be better. And um, so I suggest starting with those, those two books to consider the ways that you would want to be led. So that's step one. And then step two is... Um, you know, use, use our, yeah, look, you want to crib our values entirely, go nuts. You know, I, 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 I love the idea that the rest of the world could see, you know, could, could live and build organizations the way that, that we do. But I do think that the next step is at least, um, def, you know, take the time. It can be a weekend to define what's really valuable for you. The way that Dan and I did it was we first wrote all of the behaviors that we really want to see out of people and all the ones that we really don't, and then started grouping them. And by grouping them, we were able to get down to these five categories that everything we had written down fit into, right? So it was, it was a weekend with a whiteboard um, and pizza. And uh, that, that spawned these. And then 
we once we had them, we talked about what they were. We added some notes, and he and I would always come back um, every other week, actually, to talk about are we, you know, you, you yes, you start small. Are we living them? Are we demonstrating them? Are we role modeling them? How do we share them with the team? Should we write up some stuff about them? Should we write a blog post? Okay, let's write a blog post about it or an article, really, and share that with the team and get thoughts and get feedback and get people engaged with it. So plant your, you know, plant your flag in the ground about who you will be individually and what values you want to live in your company. Plant those flags first, and then you can start building the apparatus around them. I love that. Um, We've got eight minutes and I want to transition into a general subject of writing. Okay. You, I've read a bunch of stuff that you've published and um, like just during my research, I also accidentally stumbled into the fact that you have two books also, but the uh, how important is writing to you? I'd love to hear a little bit about your process and then how do you use it? So you have the ability to generate lots of writing on not lightweight topics. Like what do you do with that once you've written it? Yes. Great question. So, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, you've noticed like the first book I wrote was about, about college and, and making that experience great. And then the other one I wrote was about politics, neither of which is about software testing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into writing, uh, obviously I'm someone with a lot to, I, 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 I tell people you can always rely on me for an opinion and much like anything, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't become a writer, right? You become a writer when you can't help it. You can't because so much wants to come out of you. Same thing with like being a founder, right? Like anyone that says to me, should I start a startup? I say, no. And they say, why does what? Why? It's like, because you want to be a founder. You shouldn't want to be a founder. Being a founder is miserable. Um, You should start a company because you can't help but try to bring something new into the world that you believe really needs to be there Um, and that there's no other way, right? You just, you're like, I have to do it myself. And, uh, and so writing, you know, like many things, writing is the same way. So I got into writing uh, a lot in college where I was, um, where I was actually just blogging about the Iraq war because I thought it was really important for people to understand what was going on. Um, uh, the, the blog is still, I stopped writing after like 10 years or something, but, um, uh, it was called fog of war with two G's. I'm sure you can find it. Um, it's cool. It has a lot of diagrams and maps, but then, um, I ended up writing, I ended up writing my first book, actually both books when I took sabbaticals. Um, and, and when you take a sabbatical and you step back, you will find that, your brain just starts going into overdrive after you've been off for about two weeks and you don't have daily routines to worry about. Um, and, uh, you know, and this stuff just, this stuff just came out. So, so I started getting into it and then I started trying to make myself better at it. And I read a lot about writing well, including Stephen King's on writing is my favorite. Um, and now what do I, what do I do to turn writing to something valuable for the business? Well, one of them is that I'm largely speaking responsible for writing our um, writing our pieces on our values. I am largely responsible for writing our thought leadership. Um, I'm largely speaking responsible for writing a lot of our product marketing copy, 
right? So this doesn't, the problem with this is it doesn't scale all that well, um, you know, because I got a lot of other, a lot of other things I need to worry about, but I do set aside time. Um, I have always believed, I believe that, for example, you know, those of you with your marketing hats on, you know, there's a lot of like crappy content blog mills out there that are just trying to like, you know, micro maximize SEO. I believe that if you're trying to sell a truly foundational or truly revolutionary product, you need to educate the market heavily. And thought leadership is the way to do that, right? For us and our product, we actually have to reorient people away from this old mode of writing end-to-end testing. This isn't a better Selenium. It's not a better mousetrap. It's a different mode of thinking about the about the world and about software development. And, um, and so for us, having fewer but really powerful posts um, is going to be the way that we win because people will read that and they'll say, holy smokes, this is valuable. I'm going to share it with people I know, right? This is how our podcast grows. It's how most authors become popular. I mean, if you, for most of the blogs that you, dear listener, read or the podcasts you listen to, like Tom's here, you probably heard about it from another person. And the reason you heard about it from another person is because the quality is outstanding right? The quality is outstanding. And the people who are listening and reading say, wow, this is great. I, I can't help but share it. And, um, and so that's one of the ways that, that I turn my, my uh, propensity to write um, to something that helps the company is, is work on thought leadership. Um, and I believe it's also a, a great basis for really distilling what we care about and who we are as a company in order to better fulfill, um, you know, better fulfill that wacky utopian vision I have. On a, like a detail on process, like, do you, is there an outline? Like it, how do you typically, you sit down with a topic in mind or does it just come out of you and then you reorganize the pieces after they're out? Like, how do you think about that? So uh, my writing process is a little like chaos engineering and what not everyone works like this. Uh, some people work really well from an outline. Um, I have a lot of ideas that will pop up and I've got a lot of places to write them down because uh, they'll come out of nowhere. And uh, like, for example, we're actually publishing a piece about the challenger disaster and organizational burnout that I, that I went, ah, you know, and, and it just came to me one day and wrote it down. And what I actually do is I use a tool called otter, otter.ai, otter, like the, the, the sea mammal, um, otter.ai, which is a, which is a killer transcription tool. And I just talk, um, ideas kind of come more free form when I'm, when I'm talking about them. And then I go back to that and I pull out the stuff that's not garbage, uh, cause most of it's garbage, <laughs> Um, which is fine, right? Yeah. That's that's the process. And then once I pull that out, now I have an outline and some of the ways that I want to say it. And then I add that structure. Um, I have that structure and I go, I use the pyramid principle pretty heavily whenever possible. So actually, even in this, if you really pay attention, you'll hear me start with an idea and then blow up and elaborate in chaos, but then get back to a summary. And, um, I do really like, you know, <laughs> say, you know, say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said, that structure of that structure that you learned in high school is actually really good. Um, and so I just bookend, you know, I bookend the chaos a little bit, um, with this pyramid structure after I've gotten it all out. And, uh, that tends to work pretty efficiently for me. 
Um, I have a great content lead named Lisa. Uh, she she writes a lot of her own stuff, but she also is now helping me scale a little bit. So part of what's part of what we're doing now that we have, you know, that I have that talent with me is we are. Um, she's just interviewing me with Otter as well, and then she's doing the first draft, and we're working together on it. And she's starting to do this. She's you know now that she's learned a process with me, she's pulling those ideas. She's she's good. She has a journalism background. Um, so she's pulling a lot of these ideas, these unformed ideas out of a lot of our engineering leaders and thought leaders um, and turning them into really powerful content because she understands even better than I do because she's so formally trained um, and just good. Uh, she understands even better than I do how to take an idea and say, okay, what is the key point? What's the thing that the the reader is going to walk away with here that changes their lives, right? That changes how they think about the world. I love that. We're, um, we're at three o'clock. Is there anything? Um, I've got, we've got methods, we've got books, we have actionable stuff. Like I think we got, we got a lot out of this. Is there anything that you were hoping to talk about that I missed? Let me think for about five seconds. I guess my parting, my parting shot for the audience is, you know, assuming that, that a lot of you guys are early stage founders like I am, is that you, to be a founder is to, and I'm going to just get back on my soapbox briefly, to be a founder is to be a rule breaker in a big way. And you will constantly, from your advisors, from your mentors, from your VCs, which is the scariest, you will get people pushing back saying, that doesn't make sense. That's not the way to do it. There was so much about our startup that people said, well, that doesn't really fit the model, right? That doesn't fit what works. Um, you know, for example, we, we, are, we are apparently in this like graveyard chasm on how we price things between enterprise pricing and scalable SMB pricing, and it was never going to work, and we were never going to have the economics, but our dollar cost per per acquired ARR is 38 cents. Um, and usually a dollar is good. So if you pay $1 to get a dollar of ARR, that's good. We have 38 cents. Like I was right. They were wrong. And sometimes you will be wrong, but you have to, if you believe in your heart and you have some leading indicators, right? You have to test quickly, do the lean startup thing. But once you know, once you believe in your heart that you get it, right? And that, and that you've figured out something that other people haven't figured out, that is the foundation of a great startup. And so when you have all these people saying, you know, well, this industry is a graveyard or your pricing model doesn't make sense. It's failed for other companies before. When you know it's right, just keep going, right? And, and this is hardest in fundraising because you want to do what the investors want so they give you money. But here's the trick about investors. They actually don't want you to tell them what they already know. They will push back on you. But when you have taught them something, and this is true in a sale as well. So this kind of comes out of the challenger sale. When you have taught them something, that's when they're going to give you money. Because they go, okay, this person understands this market better than I do. This person is onto something that I'm not onto. Right? This person has figured out something that I thought wasn't true. And the only way startups work is when you have lighted on something that the rest of the world has not figured out yet. And so... In all things, your pricing model, your product, how you want to engage your customer, who's your target buyer, um, what you're going to say to them, how you're going to, you know, whether you're going to be remote or or uh, a local business, 
um, what your marketing, you know, what your core marketing strategy is, all that stuff, right? Get the advice and you're going to get lots of conflicting advice. People are going to tell you literally the opposite things to do time and again. And you're going to get, you know, get that advice, sit with it, filter it, marinate it. And then when you have developed conviction, go, just go. And, um, and you, and especially when you're fundraising, when you're getting challenged, if you believe that the, that the investor is wrong, tell them, right? So many people, I see them go like, oh, well, the investor told us this wouldn't work. So I'm going to go change my model. No, right? Unless you've learned something from that conversation where you go, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense, right? Work from your conviction and push back on the world when they're telling you that you're wrong, if you believe you're right. Because it is the people who do that. I mean, think like, you know, Elon Musk is the best example here. We're like, NASA engineers are telling him he was a madman. He's just well, not even a madman, just dumb, right? Just foolish. And, um, but he was right and they were wrong. And you will only be a truly successful startup founder when you have proven the world wrong. And you will have to do that time and again. So uh, trust, your, trust yourself. That's my, that's my parting thought. I love that. What a great way to finish. I'm going to try to offline maybe talk you into a part two i feel like we could do another hour on oh i'm, in. On, I'm all right in. great we got just thinking about how to parse feedback and fundraising and recruiting there's a lot more that i want to get into so i'll hit you up for uh for part two maybe in a month or so it would be my pleasure tom this has been so fun um uh th- thanks for giving me uh th- thanks for giving me a soapbox to to yell at your listeners um uh, listeners, you know, I had always, of course, love your feedback and thoughts. So leave some comments. Uh, I'll go read them. And uh, yeah, if you, you know, if you, if you do want me back, uh, let, let Tom know and, and we'll make it happen. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you, Tom. Have an awesome day. Stay safe. You out too. Bye bye. Cheers.